mean, that ball got out of here in a hurry. Just a bit outside. Do anything travels that far out of have a damn stewardess on it, don't you think? It's time for Powell at the Park. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. Cubs, Sox, all your Chicago baseball news. Dynamite drop-in money. Here's your host, Kevin Powell. This is episode number 12 of the Powell at the Park podcast. Thank you for listening to this week's pod. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes, review, and rate. On this week's episode, very excited for both the guests, Chase Fry. The uh, White Sox reliever who's off to a great start. He joined me. Uh, he was sitting in the Sox uh, dugout and was uh, willing to jump on for a few minutes. We talked about his great start, kind of about the reliever position in general and how it's being used in today's major leagues. I also talked with the founder of Big League Chew. Yes, the gum. Big League Chew. The founder joins me. The snack, uh, Sweet and Snacks Expo is in Chicago this week, which is always a, a huge deal. Runs for a few days at McCormick. Anyways, he was in town. Had him on the phone, and it's not the best uh, connection in the world, and I apologize for that, but it was the best we can do. Um, it's still it's still listenable, and I, he has a really, really interesting story about how he started Big League Chew. And for anybody who, who was played Little League or who was around it, you have you kind of have this nostalgic thought about Big League Chew, right? I mean, when I think Big League Chew, I think of my days growing up playing Little League, and you had it in your back pocket, and you throw a giant wad in, and it was always you'd always put too, too much in, uh, much more than you needed, but it was always fun. And um, we we'll talk about that a little bit more. But uh, Rob Nelson, founder of Big League Chew, joins the uh, the podcast as well. We'll start this week's episode as we always do with the rundown. All right, on this week's rundown, I wanted to address Machado Mania, which was uh, sweeping through Chicago over the past week or so. Playing on the south side, you know, there was trade rumors involving the Cubs and Orioles, or at least people were speculating or throwing the idea out there. There's also the hope for Sox fans that the Sox can sign them in the offseason. Some people are very dismissive of that idea. There's no chance the Sox are going to sign Machado. Well, they're certainly going to have a conversation with Scott Boris's agent. No question about that. And this argument that, you know, it's too early for the Sox to hand out a, a huge contract because it's too early. They're not ready to contend in 2019. You're not giving him a one-year deal. Machado's going to get an 8, 10, 13, 13-year deal, something crazy like that. And there's probably going to be an opt-out after four years or five years or something. I, I equate it to the Cubs signing John Lester. That was the turning point. When the Cubs signed Lester, put the rest of the league on notice and said, hey, look at us. We just signed the best free agent pitcher. We just gave him a whole bunch of money. We're ready. We're coming for all of you. So the, at some point, and, and Rick Hahn has said this multiple times, that when the time is right to spend money, they will. Now, do I think them signing Machado is a long shot? Yes, absolutely. The richest contract in franchise history is $68 million to Jose Abreu. Tell me they're all of a sudden going to spend $300 million on Machado? I'm not completely ruling it out, though, because I don't know who else out there around baseball is going to do that. I don't think the Yankees have any interest. They've got some big salaries. Boston? Mm, I don't know. So, I I don't know. I'm interested. I'm interested to see um, where the market lies for Machado and and Harper and how that all plays out. But I'm not just going to sit here and completely rule out Machado to the Sox. Some people are being very quick triggered with that. Is it a long shot? Yes. Put a percentage on it. I don't know, 10% that he that he signs with the Sox. It's a long shot, but it's out there. 
And uh, I think the Sox knew that part of the rebuild is eventually giving a lot of money to free agents. Now, they may still give a lot of money. is different for every franchise, and it's different for what fans you hear big money. It's You, you may think differently. But it's not just completely roll out Machado to the south side. Um, in terms of Machado to the Cubs, here are my thoughts. I just don't think it makes a whole lot of sense for the Cubs. But it's still so early. We still have we still have the draft. We still have a, you know a couple months until the trade deadline. A lot of things can play out. It's, it's fun to think about. And Cub fans continue to toss the idea out there that just just move Russell for Machado. Well, Cub fans are okay with moving Russell because he hasn't been all that good over the past year. So, of course, that move makes sense for Cubs fans. How about this, Cub fans? You want to trade Russell and Hap and Azole, top pitching prospect? You want to trade... You want to trade Russell and Schwarber for a three-, four-month rental, if that? Yeah, the idea of just trading Russell to the Orioles and maybe patch, uh, packaging a prospect or two in there for, for Machado makes sense. I think a lot of Cub fans would be on board with that, but... The Orioles are going to be like, well, wait a minute, we're, we're not idiots. We can, you know, I realize they're not the best run franchise in, in the league, but they're not just going to hand over Machado. Maybe they will. Maybe they don't get any offer that they're anticipating. Maybe everybody realizes that this is a rental and the, and the Orioles are going to pay a premium. Look, we've seen franchises be patient. Look at the last offseason. Look at the free agency market. This is different. It's a trade market. And a lot of things can play out. I do think he's going to end up with the Dodgers. I do think the Dodgers are going to find a way to to continue to be competitive this season, despite their atrocious start, despite their horrendous injuries, losing Seager. Machado on the Dodgers makes a lot of sense. Probably have a top 10 farm system. They've got assets to move. The Cubs really don't. They're going to have to to pluck from their major league club. I don't think Theo and them want to do that. I think what the Cubs are going to do, they're going to rely on the core. Remember, most of this core that's here with the Cubs has already won a World Series. Let's not get all greedy here, Cubs fans. Right? I mean, save for Lackey, Arietta, Chapman, Fowler, Ross, a few guys here and there. For the most part, you have Rizzo, Bryant, Baez, Almora, Zobrist, Lester, Hendricks. They were all here in 2016. You're telling me you don't trust that core anymore? The three straight NLCSs. So, I expect the Cubs to probably add another arm or two at the trade deadline. Relievers, fresh arms. Who knows? What if somebody gets hurt? You're going to pull the trigger early on Machado, and then what happens if you need a pitcher? Then you got nobody to trade. What if you need a starting pitcher? What if you need a back-end reliever? So those are my thoughts on Machado. Him ending up in Chicago, whether it's this year or next year, I think are very the chances are slim. But the, the options are there, and the Cubs have been very aggressive. When they feel they have a chance to contend, Theo said it before, he'll go for it. And even signing Darvish, think, look how look how um, you know look how aggressive that move was, and look what they did with Chapman. Look how much they gave up, but that was when they had more of a rich farm system. It's not so much anymore. So uh, Machado, the Sox signing as a free agent, ah, eh, very slim. Him coming to the Cubs via trade, mm, very slim as well. Those are my thoughts on Machado, and this was the rundown. All right, our first guest is Jace Fry, the lefty reliever for the White Sox. He's off to a great start. Had a great conversation with him, and appreciate him jumping on. We're now joined by White Sox reliever Jace Fry, the lefty who has yet to give up a hit or run this season. He's uh, been one of the uh, bright spots of the Sox so far. How you doing, Jace? Appreciate you jumping on the podcast. Yeah, 
Oh, yeah, no problem. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good, man. So, um, you know, obviously you've caught the eye of many with, with your stuff out of the pen and, of course, the numbers. Like As I said, no hits, no runs. But let's get to know Jace Fry a little bit. You grew up in Beaverton, Oregon. I was reading that you played in the tw- uh, 2006 Little League World Series Championship. What was that like? Oh, yeah, that was uh, it was awesome, you know. We had a great uh, tight group of guys. We played together for a, for a while, so uh, going into that, it was a great experience. And you're a two-time Tommy John. You've got, had Tommy John twice. What's this whole journey been like for you? You, you? you go through two Tommy Johns. I'm sure some doubt has to creep in when you deal with that. And then the next thing you know, you're off to a great start, and you record your first career save just a week ago. Yeah, you know, it took a lot of... A lot of long days in the training room. You know, I made the training room my second home almost at this point. But, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of monotonous work, but it was all worth it, you know, now that I'm here and in this situation, and it's been a, you know, it's been a great journey. So what's working this season? Because it's it's been pretty much dominant stuff from you from the get-go. It's, uh, it's my spin, you know. I'm spinning balls over the plate well, curveballs and sliders, and, it seems like every time I do make a a mistake, I I make the right mistake. I miss across the plate, or I I'm throwing a ball out of hand that ends up being a strike, or a strike out of my hand that ends up being a ball. And you know, it's really just keeping the hitters off balance. You know, this is a team that um, you know. Obviously, you're, you're new to the big leagues and everything, and and and, and you're a rookie in, in some sense. But this is a team that's that's obviously in in a bit of a rebuild here. How how much are you kind of dialed in with that? I I, I know you know we think back to spring training, the amount of excitement that was in the clubhouse because there is so much youthful talent up and down, you know, in the big league level and in the minors for this team. So for yourself, how much are you focused in you know individual growth, but also trying to you know envision yourself being a you know a part of the larger picture of this whole thing for the Sox? Yeah, you know we have there's just so much talent really at every level with the White Sox right now that. Try not to get caught up in, you know, the prospects or the, you know, try to read too much about what's really going on. I just take it one day at a time, really, and try to, you know, make the most of every day and, uh, you know, enjoy every day, especially while, you know, I'm in the big leagues. So uh, that's that's my kind of outlook on what's going on with the White Sox. And I know as long as, as, long as uh, we perform and execute our pitches, you know, we'll have a great chance of staying up here. Obviously, the wins and losses aren't where you guys would like them to be this year. But for you personally, how fun has this been this 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 first month or two of this season? <laughs> yeah, it's been a great start. I couldn't even you know I couldn't even imagine it before the year started that I'd come out throwing the ball this well. And you know I'm really just rolling with it, just trying to ride the wave. And it's still sometimes I'm looking at what, what's going on and just laugh about it sometimes because I know you know baseball happens and it's going to happen. But uh, right now, I'm just really enjoying every day. Well, we look at the way relievers are being used in Major League Baseball these days. We saw the Rays, you know, start a game with a reliever, back-to-back games. We've yeah. seen guys like Andrew Miller kind of redefining what a reliever can be. How much are yep. you focused in on that? How much are you dialed into that? What do you think of the evolution of the reliever? It's it's crazy because you can really <laughs> use them for matchups at any time now. There's uh you know, and a long time ago they used to throw their best reliever in whenever it mattered most in the game. Whenever they were in a pinch, they would you know, they'd throw that so called closer in the game. And we're kinda seeing it's uh you know, kinda circling back to where they're trying to get their, their best matchups in at any possible time and it's kinda crazy to see it working, but it's also 
watch. Yeah, I asked you the other day after you recorded that save if you want the closer job, and you know you said it's we'll, we'll let it play itself out and things like that. And I realize there probably is much pride for relievers in becoming a closer because you are, you know, held to a higher standard. You're in a very important spot, but in many ways, being like a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth guy that you know the fire extinguisher to come in and put out the put out the flames when they're when they're brewing out there. That's I mean, that's got to be be something for a reliever, right? I mean, I realize that the closer is sort of the, the, the pedestal of everything, but being the guy that comes in in those emergency situations, that's that's got to mean something to relievers now more so than probably three, four, five years ago. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because, you know, you can you can alter a game, you know, one pitch in that moment with runners on, and, you know, we're usually coming in with runners on, get out of a pinch or get out of a jam, and, you know, even if it, even if we're coming in for say a starter who struggled, if you could hold them there and keep our team, you know, within within range, it's going to change the rest of the game. So, you know, being a middle relief to bridge guy or you know back end guy, it's all important. And obviously, you want a closer who can just you know shut the door on righties and lefties. Is there another reliever in Major League Baseball right now that you say um, whether you emulate or a guy that you say maybe is is a comparison to the your style of pitching? <laughs> I'm uh, I'm searching. You know, I'm searching for because uh, you know a lot of lefties have four seam slider or they have really good sink sinker slider and a lot of the starters kind of have the the stuff that I have coming out of the bullpen. But uh, you know, I'm still looking. But that definitely not going to change what I got. That's for sure. Right. What's the relation uh, relationship with Coop been? Because of course he's been around for a long time. What have you learned from him, and and how have you liked pitching under Coop? I, I kind of think of Coop as you know the guy who he set he set the stone. So now every with before him has kind of you know reiterated what Coop thinks. You know, so I feel as though even though when I was in the minor leagues and working my way up, I was still kind of working with Coop. That makes sense, but uh, being with him here, it's just you know he's <laughs> he's kind of letting me do my own thing right now, and you know don't don't touch it if it ain't broke kind of thing. How have the um and you know going back to kind of this rebuild process? How is the how is the the attitude in the clubhouse been this year among you know with this with some struggles on the field happening? But of course, there's been some bright spots. How has the clubhouse handled it for the most part? I know there are a few veteran guys like James Shields um, or Jose Breu or, or kind of those veteran veteran um, statures in the clubhouse. I, mean, I think that, yeah yeah go go ahead, Jace. Uh, I think everyone's you know they're doing great because. We know we're competing. You know, we're not out here trying to lose. We're we're competing, and we can see that within one another. And uh, you know, it seems that a few wins, you know, are now coming our way, and the energy's really picking up. And uh, hopefully, we can just keep keep riding the energy because you know, uh, a winning clubhouse is always a happier clubhouse. That's Chase Fry, the White Sox reliever, 24-year-old who has yet to give up a hit or a run this season. Off to an impressive start. And uh, you got a lot of Sox fans excited, Jace. I'll, I'll tell you that much. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, on social media, when you're pitching, people are excited. Uh, seeing the stuff you have is nasty. And I think people are starting to envision you within the uh, in the larger picture of things. So uh, keep it up. Uh, congrats on the, the early success here. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you down the road. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you to Jace Fry, who, again, off to a great start for the Sox. No hits, no runs through May 23rd is when we had our conversation. Um, up next, was very excited for this one. We booked this one a couple weeks in advance. The, the founder of Big League Chew, yes, the bubblegum. 
Okay, Rob, before we get to the origin of Big League Chew, let's talk about your time as as a pro pitcher. You're a lefty reliever with the Portland Mavericks. Talk about your time with that club because a documentary was made about them called The Battered Bastards of Baseball. Talk about your time with that team and uh, your love of baseball in general. Well, I, I suppose I have to talk about the love of baseball first because uh – I ended up going to three different colleges before I settled in, amazingly, in the Ivy League. And I got to pitch for Cornell and ended up getting a philosophy degree. And uh, my last year of college was the only good baseball year that I had. And it just reinvigorated my love for the game of baseball. I'd been good as a little leaguer. I was a pretty good high school pitcher. But it was only my last year, 1971, that I was a good college pitcher. I went 6-2. and two, Lost to Harvard, who won the Ivy League title, and Michigan State, who won the Big Ten. So I was fired up. I thought I had a future in baseball, and but I was wrong. I, I had three weeks in spring training with uh, rookie league Cardinals. I ended up pitching and teaching school in Cape Town, South Africa. It was the best opportunity for me to keep playing baseball. I did that for two seasons and had good success there and a lot of fun, met some great people. And then read a sports clipping that my dad had sent me talking about the independent Portland Mavericks baseball club run by Bing Russell, the father of Kurt Russell, a renowned actor and all-around terrific guy. So long story short, I went from South Africa to Portland, Oregon, uh, stopping off at New York, did a couple of weeks of substitute teaching to make some money to get to the West Coast. And in June of 75, I came out and tried out for the Portland Mavericks. And interestingly, I didn't make the team which forced me to be fast on my feet. I came up with an idea for the Little Mavericks Baseball School. I started Bing Russell's Baseball Day Camp. That's what kept me in Portland. Come August, he gave me a chance to pitch a little bit. But frankly, uh, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. The two great seasons I had in South Africa were, were against competition that wasn't at the professional level. But Bing liked me, and I stuck around, and I threw batting practice and ran the camp and sold tickets on the phone and uh, repeat that year two and year three. In fact, in the summer of 77, I became the pitching coach and ran the tryouts for Bing, and I did everything I could to be a part of that team because Bing Russell had created a magical time and a a magical team uh, uh, in Portland, Oregon. The fans responded so greatly, and it's on the documentary, The Battered Bastards. It's really a fun film, and the reason the film really works is because it's true. They didn't embellish anything. It was warts and all. What was great about the Mavs as an independent team playing against organized baseball teams. It was different back then. An independent team could play in a league with affiliated teams, which meant we could play against guys like Ozzie Smith and Rick Sutcliffe and just a number of other major leaguers, eventual major leaguers. So that was a lot of fun, and it allowed me to stay in baseball, not the way I thought I was going to stay, but it was because I was sitting in the bullpen with a lot of time on my hands because I didn't get too many innings with the Mavs that I had a conversation with teammate Jim Bouton, the former Yankee, uh, uh, just about anything and everything. And one topic that came up was looking at teammates who were chewing the other stuff, and Jim asked me, had I ever tried um, chewing tobacco? And I told him, you know, I tried it once, and it never made sense to me. I was supposed to throw batting practice that day, and I was unable to because the tobacco made me sick. It was about an inning later when I said to Jim, I, uh, I've had this idea to shred bubblegum just so I could look cool but not make myself ill. 
And Jim absolutely flipped. He, he loved the idea. He said, Rob, I could sell that idea. I think that is so much fun that, that we could be tough-looking guys, but deep down we're really not. And it made me laugh. And, and then another, another inning goes by, and he says, what would you call it? You know, we're just brainstorming. And just out of thin air, I said, uh, how about Big League Chew? It was like the first thing off the top of my head that, uh, that that's what we would call the brand. And that's what that's how the whole thing started. And that's the birth of it. So then where did you guys go from there? Then you guys pitched this to Wrigley. I was reading a Washington Post article, and, and you kind of joked that one of the reps from Wrigley said they liked you because you had a mind of an 11-year-old. So it seemed to it's <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the partnership seemed to work there. Um, from that, you know, because you have the idea, and then it's putting the you know, wheels in motion. For, once you had that down the big league chew aspect where did you guys go from there well it, it, it's kind of amazing it's almost like a make-believe story in that jim went to seven or eight gum companies and nobody was buying we were lucky that just outside of chicago was amaral confections the division of wrigley in naperville and they loved the idea and as luck would have it they knew how to shred gum they just really didn't know how to market it they loved our presentation uh, they, they love the packaging. They love the theme. But interestingly enough, we had a three-year deal with them. They thought this will be a nice novelty. And uh, and so we got lucky. We, we really did. I mean, even making the first batch of Big League Chew, which I made in Bat Boy Todd Field's kitchen, Maverick Bat Boy Todd Field's kitchen, uh, in January of 1979, I happened to be reading an article in People magazine about a company out of Arlington, Texas, that was selling... Um, uh, a, a bubblegum kit that you could make your own gum. And I said, this is perfect. So I bought a box of the stuff. I made the batches. That's when Jim went peddling the stuff. And the, the Amarillo people were very kind. They said, we love your idea. We love the name. Let us make the gum. Your stuff is uh, inedible, unchewable. And they were right. But, you know, and I think the reason we succeeded was because Jim had some success, you know, as a Yankee pitcher, as a writer and author and so forth. So he was way more skilled as a businessman than I was. I was a middle school teacher and, and uh, just looking for uh, the next place to pitch uh, a ball game. So Jim was the, Jim used to say that I had the inspiration and Jim was the perspiration. And that's absolutely true. He's the guy who pounded the pavement. He's the fellow who convinced uh, Amaral to give it a go. The first contract was for three years. And after year one, when we had sold $18 million worth of shredded gum, they said, you know what, let's reconsider and do a longer deal. So we just kind of fell into success. It's, it's, quite, it's quite amazing. No, no, lucky, no lefty luckier than I. Well, it's, um, you know, when I think of Big League Chew, I immediately think of my childhood, and I'm sure it's like that for a lot of people. Um, one of the things that, that sticks out to me, and I guess for many iconic brands, whatever it may be, they've kind of mastered the the uh, the art of packaging, and Big League Chew is distinct. It is, it is when you see it, you know it. Talk about the, because it's always like this big jacked ball player on the, on the, on the, the cover of the packaging. Talk about how you guys desi- uh, decided to design the packaging packaging because it was always just so cool to be sitting in a dugout when you're in little league and and you get a package and your dad you know maybe i was at i was at a, uh, an event this past weekend and there was a little league going on a game going on across the park and there was a concession stand and i was with my brother and the first thing he said was man let's go to the concession stand i hope they have big league chew it's just there's just something about it the packaging the the, the fact that it's you know it's it's the alternative to what the pros used to do and and chewing tobacco and things like that so i, I guess just talk about the packaging because it is 
so much different from what else you see on the shelves when it comes to gum and, and things like that. You know, frankly, I, I, I think I got the idea from just a brown bottle of Hires Root Beer. You know, that it was kind of the fun alternative to a pint of Guinness. And uh, it was just a, a, a kid's version of something that adults did. So the pouch made sense. As it turned out, the shreds came out really perfectly for kids. It was soft. They could take a little bit. They could take a lot. They could share it with their teammates. That's always been a big factor with Big League Chew, that you know that you're a legitimate friend when your buddy says, would you like some of my Big League Chew? And he lets you stick your fingers, your grubby fingers into his pouch of uh, shred and gum. But I think those components, the fact that there was no no wrappers that you had to deal with, and, and you could be chewing a bunch of it, and if it started to lose its flavor, you could take a few more shreds and stuff them in your mouth, and you know by the end of a six- or seven-inning game, uh, your pouch was empty and you were happy. You know, we yeah. really, as Cal Ripken said, you know, during the uh, 25th anniversary celebration that we had uh, about a dozen years ago, he said that you guys just brought fun to the ball yard. And, and that's the thing that I hear over and over, whether it's a cab driver or a bartender or, or a waitress. Uh, everywhere we go, when people find out I'm the gum guy, everybody seems <laughs> to have a story, something that yeah. made them smile. And consequently, it makes me smile because that was the whole idea. I wanted to come up with something that was fun. In terms of you know going into a business long term, uh, we didn't know what we were doing. We, we really didn't. We were just hoping it would succeed. And how many packages sold to this day, 2018, from, from the start in 1980 till now? How many packages? Uh, it's over 800 million pouches. Wow. Well, and you guys have a new flavor, too. I, I know you're at the, the uh, Sweets and Snacks Expo here in Chicago. Um, new, new flavor? Anything else you want to plug for Big League Chew that people should be looking for? Because, uh, you know, yeah. what, whether you're playing Little League or just kind of want a nostalgic day and want to throw a lot of Big League Chew, and I think people are interested. Well, we, you know, we still have the great flavors, you know, the ground ball grape and out of here original. The big news this year was Big Rally Blue Raspberry. It, it's quite fantastic. It, it, it's quickly become my favorite. It, it's my big league chew of choice. Makes your lips a little blue. It tastes awesome. The bubbles, there's something about the texture of it that the bubbles just seem to work. You know, I moved the factory. I bought the equipment from the Wrigley Company when I left Wrigley about eight years ago when the Mars Wrigley thing was happening. And I knew that Big League Chew was probably not going to be a good fit in such a large company. And was lucky with the help of a great Chicago guy, Bob Anderson, we found a, uh, a wonderful company in western New York, just outside of Buffalo, uh, and called Ford Gum. They've been around over 100 years. And we're, we're 40% of Ford Gum's business now. So Big League Chew really matters to them. And the gum has never been better. Now, the quality of the gum is great. The fact that it's made in the USA is, is a very cool thing. Tomorrow I leave for Cooperstown. Uh, I'm part of a baseball clinic at the Hall of Fame. It's, it's the Cooperstown Classic Weekend. And so kids will learn how to catch ground balls from Ozzie Smith at shortstop. But when they go into the right field bullpen, it's going to be uh, bubbles with Rob. And I just can't believe that you know we've become the, the Hall of Fame bubblegum. They've got an ex- uh, a, a small exhibit of the history of Big League Chew, which just makes me smile. You know, I always thought I'd get in the Hall of Fame as a left-hander, but uh, turns out uh, 
It was I gum. Didn't know it was an adventure. <laughs> yeah, who knew? Rob, thank you so much. I, I know everybody, um, anybody who's ever even just uh, been around a little league park or the big league park, whatever it may be, everybody everybody knows big league chew, and I think it uh, has a spot in everybody's baseball heart for sure. So uh, thank you so much, Mr. Rob Nelson, the creator of Big League Chew. Can't thank you enough for joining the podcast, Rob. This was fun. Thank you so very much, guys. We'll see you now. That's Rob Nelson. Thank you to him. Thank you to Jace Fry for joining the Paul at the Park podcast, episode number 12. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Um, gave you my thoughts on Machado in general. Machado mania sweeping Chicago over the past week. Um, and again, thanks to Jace Fry and Rob Nelson for joining me on this week's podcast. Please subscribe, review, and rate on iTunes. Be much appreciated. Thank you for listening. More to come on episode number 13 next week. Hope you can tune in. And remember, follow me on Twitter at kpowell 720 for baseball updates and all sorts of things. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.